This is the Hockey News Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Hockey News Podcast. It's Matt Larkin here. It's Ryan Kennedy here. It's Stephen Ellis. We thought Ken Campbell, but Ken was on vacation. We were sitting here just waiting for him to show up. And then we were just informed. Breaking news. I'm getting this now. Ken is on vacation. So there's no Ken for this podcast, but we will still get it done as a trio. And uh, Ryan, let's start by talking some playoff hockey. It's sort of playoff hockey. It's playoff adjacent. If you want to consider salary cap complaints, playoff adjacent. We saw in game one of the Battle of Florida, maybe the best game of the entire NHL season, maybe the best game in two years that we've seen. Nikita Kucherov returns WWE style and (laughs) does the heel turn with two goals, one assist after the of course, much talked about cap circumvention where he's gone all season. He miraculously is healed. His nine and a half million dollar salary doesn't matter. He comes back in time and he makes an immediate impact. So we obviously saw a lot of complaints on Twitter. I want to know where you land on this. Are you are you of the mindset that the lightning are shady? Are they circumventing the cap? Is it more the CBA's fault? Is it just, hey, this is life in the flat salary cap world? Where do you land on this? Well, it's really interesting, and I blogged on it earlier this week. If you believe that Tampa Bay held their best player out for an entire season, hoping he would be in tip-top shape for game one, I mean, that's quite the conspiracy theory, and there's a lot of risk involved there. As I wrote, what would have happened if Andre Vasilevsky got hurt during the season and or Braden Point, and Tampa just – Missed the playoffs. Would that have been worth it to, you know, to ruin the chance of a back-to-back Stanley Cup run for Tampa Bay? I just, I feel that Julian Breesbaugh is too smart to leave things up to chance like that. And, you know, hearing from other players who had similar surgeries, they said, yeah, you know, it takes a long time to get into proper game form. Sure, you can skate, you can probably do a couple of things, but it's a hip. And, you know, Kucherov actually said it after the first game. He's like, a new hip's a new hip. It's different. You know, I think he's still getting used to it. And I I see, you know, the whole idea behind uh, the salary cap. I do think, you know, there's sort of a flaw there. I think I saw one suggestion that said, you know, you have to play at least one regular season game to be eligible for the playoffs. I think that's, that's fair. And I, you know, I wonder, depending on how well Tampa Bay and Kucherov do in these playoffs, if the next time the GMs of the league meet or even the owners for that matter, if they say, we, we got to fix this little loophole because we don't like how it went down. But for me personally, I think, you know, Tampa Bay, they didn't break any rules and, you know, they, they assumed the risk. Uh, I mean, they did finish third. They don't have home ice advantage and, you know, that's, that can be big, especially given, you know, how great that crowd was in Florida. So I'm, I'm okay with it. Mm -hmm. It, It's funny. I I don't know if I, if I uh, believe Tampa is as innocent as you do, but I also don't care. So, you know, they have some, some clear advantages, a stacked roster, even with the tax breaks, you know, they're able to sign players for a little bit less. And as a result, they're able to make a team that's pretty stacked even without Kucherov. So I think they're pretty confident they can make the playoffs without him. And to me, what, what tipped their hand is when information was being leaked like a couple of months ago, like, oh, Kucherov targeting playoffs for return. That was a mistake, I think, by the Lightning. They should have played it like, oh, this, it's not looking good, everyone. And then it's a surprise when he's miraculously ready. Oh, he's gutting it out for game one. I think that was the angle that they should have taken, but instead it was like kind of a known thing. I already said on this podcast before when I was talking to like Victor Hedman a month ago, and he was like, you know, it's going to be good to get Coochie back. You know, I mean, if, if, uh, if he makes it back, but like, it was pretty clear what was happening. So the circumvention was happening at the same time. I don't really blame the lightning. It's not like this is the first time this has been done in 2015, the Chicago Blackhawks, Patrick Kane parachuted down from the rafters in time for game one of the playoffs after having broken his collarbone. And, and, and when he was out, you know, the, the, the Blackhawks were able to trade for chemo team and Antoine Vermette, and they were way over the cap theoretically, but it didn't count with Kane coming back for the playoffs so this isn't a new thing to me if you have an issue with it it's just it's just with the system and I also think it's more forgivable right now than in normal times because of the flat salary cap you have a lot of teams including the Lightning Lightning are probably the prime example they were building their long-term roster 
under the assumption the cap was going to keep going up, right? So when they were signing their players like Kucherov or Braden Point, whatever, it was, you know, at the time, pre-COVID, we thought the cap was going to go up to between 84 and 88 million. And then by next season, maybe it was going to be in the 90s, right? So teams were sort of forecasting that ahead. No one could have foreseen the pandemic. So I kind of, you know, when we see teams now having to do tap dancing to get out of cap troubles, I kind of say, well, yeah, these are unprecedented times. And the teams that were spending near the top, of course, they're going to be squeezed. So good on them for a little ingenuity. Um, I, I, but I definitely don't think the lightning are, are innocent. I think they know what they're doing, but you know, good on them. And if you have a problem with it, then your problem is with the CBA. It's not with Julian Brisebois, in my opinion. Uh, so looking at the, the slate of matchups, obviously you and I, Ryan already previewed every series, but I'd like to know who's your hot seat team. It can be more than one if you have more than one team, but what team do you think is under the most pressure to at least win one round? That's a good, that's a good tongue twister. At least win one round. So who is your hot seat team? Who has to get by this first round matchup? Well, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there that would say, Oh, it's gotta be Toronto or Edmonton. But I actually feel that with those teams, even if they flame out in the first round, you're not far enough into that particular coaching or even GM cycle to, to pull the trigger. You know, I mean, Sheldon Keefe hasn't been there that long. Dave Tippett hasn't been there that long. Same with Dubas and Holland. Uh, I, I think they would kind of get at least one more mulligan. So the team that I'm looking at is actually Pittsburgh. And the reason I say that is because, you know, we, we know they've been going, at, going for it for years. But if they lose to the Islanders in the first round, that's three years in a row that they've lost in the first round. And you just you can't have that right now. I mean, the Penguins are basically on borrowed time where they know that eventually Crosby and Malkin are going to age. They, are be, they, they will become mortal like the rest of us. They are, they are still you know, in that sort of immortal realm, but it's, it's getting to the point where they are no longer going to be able to carry this team year in and year out. And you don't have the players coming in behind them. You don't have any semblance of a pipeline to help out. So they got to do it now. They, every year, they basically got to do it now. And if they lose in the first round again, then I think you have to say, okay, you know, I mean, Mike Sullivan has been a tremendous coach, but we need to go, we need to figure out some way of, of shaking things up. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, Pittsburgh has had success in, in the past, bringing in a new coach and, and winning a championship, whether it's Bilesmo or Sullivan. And, and obviously, you know, I mean, Ron Hextall has just got there, so you're not going to change the GM. But I, I think Pittsburgh is on the hot seat because they, there's no margin of error. They, you know, we know what their plan is, and they, and they have a limited time to accomplish that feat again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the Penguins are a good pick, especially if they do lose to the Islanders. That's three times in four years that Barry Trotz will have knocked them out of the playoffs because going back to uh, the Capitals in 2018 as well. And I think, you know, with it's like Brian Burke coming in as, in the presidential role was sort of the win now element. But as everyone has said, Ron Hextall, you know, he's been known as a very conservative GM and he's more of the long term rebuild guy, which like what he did with the Flyers. So it's like if the Penguins bomb out, then maybe Hextall gets a little more control of the direction of that team, which could be more long term thinking, of course, of getting Malkins coming near the end of his contract. I think next year is his final year. So I, I had the Penguins written down on my short list here. I also had the Boston Bruins because they have a lot of UFAs. You know, we don't know if Taylor Hall is going to come back. We don't know if Tuka Rask is going to come back. We think they are, but, you know, David Krejci as well. It could be the end of an era. They already lost Krug and Chara last year. So if Boston bombs out in round one, maybe John Sweeney has to sort of rethink things. It's possible. I don't think they're going to lose that series, but you never know. Um, I had Edmonton as my number two hot seat team just because of the whole, you know, don't waste Connor McDavid's prime. I think that's even more under the microscope because they bombed out, you know, really choked pretty much last year against the Blackhawks as the top seed in, in that play in round. And then this year you have McDavid having that legendary season. And basically you had you had Dreisaitl win the heart last year. You're going to have McDavid win it this year, back-to-back scoring champs, two different players. And if you still have no series wins to show for it, I think it's time for a lot of hand wringing, especially because of the fact that, at the deadline this year, you know, the Oilers, they just didn't go and get those depth pieces to support McDavid and Drysaddle, right? So I think you have to look at some more wholesale changes in Edmonton if they can't get over the hump. But to me, I do have the Leafs as the team under the most pressure, just because if they if they don't beat the Habs this year, you know, this is the team that people are calling the best Leafs team in about 30 years. They're the, the 
champion of the division. They almost won the president's trophy. And this would be five straight series losses to, to start the Matthews Marner era. And especially because, you know, this was the year where Kyle Dubas pulled out all the stops. The time for patience was over. He remade the team. He brought in players who were tougher to play against. You no know, TJ Brody, Joe Thornton, the list goes on. He ponied up the first round pick for Nick Felino. Everything Dubas has done in the last year, he sent the message like, no, this is it. We are not tolerating these first round defeats anymore. So I think it has to happen this year. Otherwise, the thing is with the Leafs, with everything Dubas has done, I just don't know if they if they can't win one series, maybe even two series. I I genuinely don't know what's left to do with this team because he's built a very balanced roster, and I just don't know what's going to be missing. So it'll be inter- interesting to see what happens. And then, and that's the interesting thing about Toronto is, say they lose to Montreal, what do you do? And, you know, if you look at that roster, I mean, there's not much to change other than you know if. You know, if Jack Campbell is the reason that they lose the series, then obviously you need to go out and you, you need to get a goaltender that you can count on because uh, obviously it's not going to be Frederick Anderson. He's the UFA and, you know, he's just he's just lost it this year. But Dubas gave them the tools. Keith has only been there for a, a short while. That's the sort of vexing thing for me is, you know, like what trade do you make to shake up this lineup? Because it seems like that, like everything is there on a platter and and to me that's the that's the strange thing about the Leafs is I don't I don't know what you change if they lose. yeah it's like maybe you don't maybe you just double down and say eh, and just hope that they play better next year so we'll see what happens yeah and so let's switch gears to the teams that miss the playoffs let's pour pour one out for those teams um and this is sort of a two-part question for you the first part is tell me tell me a team or multiple teams that you are worried the most about out of the group that missed the playoffs. Who who has you legitimately concerned in terms of their long-term forecast? I'm looking at the Columbus Blue Jackets as my number one in that category. Elite talent is hard to bring to Columbus if you don't develop it, and then you got to hold on to it. It's, it's been a problem over the years. That's no secret. You know, Artemi Panarin being the best example, but there's quite a few other players that have followed him out of town. And, you know, they've they parted ways with John Tortorella. So, you know, you know, you don't have to play Tort's style, but from the way Yarmo Kekalainen was talking, it seems like they want somebody that at least has this, some of the trademarks uh, that Tortorella brought and, and, you know, specifically culture, culture, leadership. You know, those are the hallmarks of Blue Jackets hockey. Um, but you know, do they open it up a little more offensively? You know, that's sort of the question and, you know, goal scoring was a big problem this year, but they do have Patrick Laine, who is a proven goal scorer in the past, you know, Igor Chinikov is coming to North America. He is, you know, proven in the KHL that he can score against men, you know, Cam Atkinson has proven in the past that he can score. Uh, but you have no centers, you know, you traded away Pierre-Luc Dubois, you know, you've got guys that are kind of like middle six centers at best. I know they have a lot of faith in Alexander Tessier. You know, they tried Max Domi back at center at the end of the year. You know, Liam Foody can play center. You know, they, you know, Boone Jenner can play center. It's not you know where he's best suited, but I just don't see a team that's constructed the way a modern successful NHL team is. And then, of course, you know, the backdrop is, Next year is Seth Jones's final contract, you know, final year of his contract before he's eligible to become an unrestricted free agent. I know they're already having discussions, but if those, those discussions don't go anywhere and Columbus is far out of the playoff picture in, say, December or January, then you have to say to yourself, OK, well, do we have to trade Seth Jones before losing him for nothing? So I'm worried about Columbus because they seem to get sort of pushed into trades for their best players uh, or, or they just, you know, it, it was good that they held on to Panarin and Bobrovsky and Duchesne that one year because they had the fantastic playoff upset of Tampa Bay. Um, but in other cases, you know, they, they've just had to trade away some of their, their crucial players and, and they haven't gotten the best returns necessarily for them. So it's, it's been, it's been difficult. Mm-hmm. And I just worry that it's a bit of a slope that they continue to go down. And I'm not sure what would turn it around other than 
drafting a franchise player in the next couple of years, such as Shane Wright or Connor Bedard, both of whom are centers. Yeah, good points. Like sometimes I get, I kind of get Pittsburgh Pirates vibes from the Columbus Blue Jackets and that, you know, they, they can be plucky, but every time they sort of get closer to a crescendo and they develop some good players, those good players want out or they end up trading the good players and then they kind of have to reset and start the cycle over again. So very good pick. I hadn't, I, it's funny. I, Columbus wasn't on my radar for some reason for this question and you said it and I'm like, oh, that's a good pick. Uh, for me, you know, I've been hard on this team all year at the Calgary Flames. I'm still extremely concerned about the Flames. Um, because we know, you know, last offseason, they went all in. They signed Jacob March for $6 million a year. They signed Chris Tanev. They were behaving like a team that was saying, this is it. No more Mr. Nice Guy. We have to go for it. Brad Trilliving, understanding that going into his seventh year as GM, you know, it's time for results. And what happens? The team falls flat and they end up, you know, hiring Daryl Sutter as coach. And I, you know, I criticized the hire the day it happened. They, hired, they brought in the team that was having trouble scoring. And as a small team, they brought in a guy whose teams never score and team whose teams are usually effective when they're really big. It just was a horrible mismatch, I thought, from the start. He has multiple years left on his contract, which casts doubt on, you know, are they going to remake the team in his image? Is Brad Trilliving going to be the GM next year? I know there's been already some whispers that it might he might get moved into a different role in the organization. You know, if he's not fired outright, hard to say, but I know there's been some talk. We might hear something in the coming days. But regardless of how you look at the Flames, to me, the problem with them, and I see the same thing in San Jose, you know, I always use this roller coaster analogy. So if you look at, you know, a team like the Anaheim Ducks, the Detroit Red Wings, New Jersey, you know, they're at the bottom. They're, they're, roller coaster cars already bottomed out and they understand, Oh yeah, we're just repairing it now. Eventually we're going to start climbing up again. Whereas the flames and the sharks are like, no, no, we're not bad. No, we're, we're still good. We can still win as they're going down, down, down. down. They, it's the denial. Those are the teams to me that are the furthest away from the Stanley cup. Dare I say like to me, the Calgary flames are further away from the Stanley cup than the Buffalo Sabres, which sounds nuts. That's a, maybe that's a bit of a hot take, but I'm saying it to make a point. There's no worse place to be as a fan than cheering for a team that's in denial because the Flames have not accepted that they're not good enough yet. They've not been willing to enter a rebuild and it's time. I said it before the season. I still maintain it. So that's a team I think that I'm very concerned about. I think you have to explore trading Johnny Gaudreau, trading Sean Monaghan, build your team around Matthew Kachuk. And, you know, you have some guys coming down, of course, like Jacob Pelletier. So you have some pieces to build around long-term, but it's going to be, I think, a long time before we see the Flames as legitimate contenders again. Um, so the second part to this question, Ryan, is who of the teams that missed the playoffs are you feeling pretty good about, even though they're out? Are you still thinking, you know, hey, things are progressing. They look good this year. Or it could be a team that had a bad year, but you're not too worried. They deserve a mulligan. Who's your pick? Well, I, I'm going to mention two teams. I'm going to do one briefly because I know we've got some mailbag questions coming up that uh, I might go back to them on. But, you know, the New York Rangers is a team that, I see a lot of hope in for the future because they have so much young talent and, and, you know, the pipeline is still producing, you know, we're just seeing the beginning of Zach Jones on the defense core. And obviously they already had Keandre Miller back there and Adam Fox leading the way. And, you know, you have Lafreniere and Capococco finding their way in the NHL. You still got Panarin. Zabanajad once again had a monster second half, although now we obviously understand that, you know, COVID was a big part of why his first half, uh, was so kind of groggy. So I, I see a lot of potential in the Rangers, but the, the team I'm going to focus in on is the Ottawa Senators. And we've talked a lot about them this year. You know, they were the cover of Future Watch, and, and rightly so. You look at the talent that they have assembled, all their best players are young players. And, you know, they, they need goaltending. Fair enough. I mean, you know, if Matt Murray could rebound, then that's great. But I think they're going to need sort of a couple of platoon options for the, at least the short term. But you look at that team and, you know, Brady Kachuk, Tim Stutzla, Drake Batherson, Josh Norris, Thomas Shabbat on the back end. You know, they have so much talent. They're all, you know, under the age of 25. I mean, that's an incredible opportunity for that franchise to, to build around. And the fact that the Senators were so good in the last sort of half or third of the season, I think it bodes well heading into the summer where they can come in with a lot of confidence and say, look, we have just started this journey together. We got a great coach in DJ Smith. You know, we all love playing with each other. It seems like they're all very friendly. 
And, you know, they, they've got that sort of, it's almost like a, like a college dorm room with their, their best players where they're all growing up together. And, you know, there's just a great camaraderie there and, and they have talent. Uh, so, you know, they still have Jake Sanderson coming up the pipeline, you know, Jacob Bernard Docker is already signed. Shane Pinto is already signed. Um, you know, and, and both him and JBD have played a couple of games, but I mean, it's going to be so much fun to watch the Ottawa Senators, you know, starting next year. But I would say the year after that, it's going to be like serious. Yeah, I, I think you make a great pick there. And I do have Ottawa as my main pick as well, especially, you know, you look at after that 2-12-1 start, they finished the year 21-16-4. and And, you know, you could say, well, you know, they played well when there's no pressure, but that's, that's 73% of the season that they're playing at that level. Um, and they were playing teams that were in dogfights for playoff spots. And, you know, it's a tight division. And there was a, quite a battle for that fourth spot for a while. Um, so to me, I think those games, a lot of those games were meaningful. Um, so I'm pretty optimistic about them. I think this could be an 80 point team next year, maybe even 85. I think if we assume we go back to the traditional divisional format, I think this is a better team than Buffalo, a better team than Detroit. And, you know, it's going to be hard to crack that top four next year, you know, with Toronto, Tampa, Boston, and Florida, you have Montreal as well, but I still think we're going to see over the course of an entire season, a much improved standings showing for Ottawa for the reasons you already outlined, you know, looking good long-term. I also want to shed some light. This is more of an obvious pick because they were, you know, in any normal year where they had better luck, they would be a playoff team. They were Stanley cup finalists last year, the Dallas stars. So Dallas, obviously, they had the big COVID, COVID problem that delayed the start of their season. They had no Tyler Sagan. They had no Ben Bishop. So, obviously, the deck was kind of stacked against them, as I said, going into the season. You know, because they had restricted free agents to sign, it was Hintz and Gurianov and guys like that, Radic Faxa. They didn't have any money to pursue any upgrades. So, the, the, the core of the roster was older. And I predicted after last season that the Stars were going to have a, a much harder time this year. That said, there's some really encouraging things we saw. The next generation is, so, is sort of taking over. We saw, of course, Jason Robertson. We've talked about him a lot on this podcast already. He was tremendous. He's going to be, at worst, the number two vote-getter in the Calder Trophy race. Rupe Hintz took his game to an entirely different level this season. I don't know if even the Stars realized he could be that good. And that's huge because you know that you know Tyler Sagan, Jamie Benn, they're into the 30s now. You need to see the next generation, especially cap-wise when the Stars, they couldn't afford to pursue outside help. They needed to see that improvement from, from within, and they got it this year. It's the same with Jay Gottinger and Net. You, you, now you know who your next generation is. You can even afford to you know leave an Anton Kudobin exposed in the expansion draft. Maybe he goes because you have your next generation starting goalie to succeed Ben Bishop as well. So to me, and of course, Thomas Harley coming up in the system too. We know that decor is great already. So I think Dallas is going to be fine next year. They, they Even though you can think of this season as a regression, they, they, they got the things they needed to see most, which was improvement from the next generation of kids. If we didn't see that, I'd be pretty concerned. But now I think that we know who's going to lead Dallas long-term, and it's the Hints and Jason Robertson generation. So I think they'll be just fine in the long run. Uh, switching back to teams in the playoffs, uh, and let's talk about a player who's temporarily not in the playoffs. That's Sam Bennett. So in that battle in Florida, that first game, it was pretty chippy. We saw some questionable hits a few, I don't think as many as people think, but uh, we know Sam Bennett has been suspended one game for hitting Blake Coleman from behind. So where do you stand on that? Do you agree with the suspension? Do you think it was too short, too long? What is your opinion, Ryan? I think it was pretty good. And for me, it's contextual. I, I, I know, I'm, I'm sure there are people out there that'll say, you know, it shouldn't matter uh, whether it's playoffs or not, and it, you know, it shouldn't matter the, the context. But, you know, I'm looking at a Florida team that is playing a very good Tampa Bay squad that has a lot more playoff experience than they do. And obviously they have Kucherov back. Sam Bennett has been incredible for the Panthers since coming over in that trade from Calgary. So he, he's a vital cog. Let's, let's not uh, mince words here. He's a crucial player. Uh, and, you know, and they lost game one. So they're, they're behind the eight ball already. So him missing another game, that could really damage Florida's hopes of winning this series. And was it a brutal hit from behind? Yes, it was. Uh, were, you know, were there other things that preceded it? I mean, obviously, Blake Coleman had a, a, a late hit uh, beforehand uh, on Barkoff, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure all these things are related and they, they come into the, the factors. Could he have gotten... Two games, I suppose so, but I feel like, you know, Sam Bennett's not a guy that's been 
you know, suspended a lot. He's not a Brad Marchand or a, or a Tom Wilson. You know, he plays a physical, gritty style, but it's it, it's usually, you know, on the right side of the line. So I feel like when the one game, it's it sets sort of a precedent where it's like, okay, we are going to be suspending guys for dodgy hits in these playoffs. So everybody else needs to be aware. Obviously, Sam Bennett is now aware. And uh, for me, it was it was good. Yeah. For me, I think it was a little light because, you know, some people are going to say, uh, well, hey, it was a chippy game. There was a lot going on. And my answer to that is exactly. That really shows that this was a premeditated attack. You know, in the con- not premeditated as in the night before, but as in <laughs> Sam Bennett knew what he was doing. Because of the fact that there was the hit from Coleman on Barkov that was late. I don't think it actually was that late. I looked at it again. Barkov had the puck and he also turned slightly. It was more on the shoulder. So I don't think that was too questionable of a hit. But to me, it shows, you know, we know that Sam Bennett was seeking revenge. He had all day to stare at the back of Blake Coleman's jersey, who's just kind of standing there in the corner, didn't even see Sam Bennett as far as I can tell. So to me, it was a particularly predatory and deliberate, deliberately malicious hit. So to me, that's why it should be longer. I know one game it's weighted, but I think you could say two games, three games. But because of the narrative of what was happening in that game, I think it actually makes the hit worse because... To me, there was nothing that Sam Bennett was trying to do other than hurt Blake Coleman. So he threw a dirty hit. Whereas there are a few other questionable hits people didn't like in the game. Some people said Ryan McDonough and Anthony Duclair. I don't think that one was as bad. They're battling for the puck. Duclair kind of turned his body at the last second. It's not the same thing. That was sort of in the heat of battle. And when players turn, they're sort of putting themselves in that position. It's a choice. Whereas Blake Coleman, was he, well, he didn't turn. He was just standing there. His back was already, you know, perfect, just lined up with Bennett's sight. And he just made that big charge. So I, I didn't like it. Uh, I think the the one game ban, even the weighted one game ban, is a little bit light. Uh, let's do some listener listener mailbag. This one, this sounds like a pub, an Irish pub. Carling O'Keefe, home oh, of the finest pints in town. Carling O'Keefe wants to know who are some potential prospects who might unexpectedly fall into the top ten. And I, I checked with Carling. Carling meant to say rise into the top ten in this year's draft from a frustrated Canucks fan. So I'm going to turn the floor over to you, Ryan, but before I do, because obviously, you know, Ryan is our draft guru. He's working on the rankings for our draft preview as we speak. Um, But one thing I will say first is, you know, I'm working on something else for the draft preview, just about the idea that this year's draft class is going to be so different from a scouting perspective because of COVID. So I don't know if we're going to see unexpected risers in the top 10, but I think what we're going to see is players who would have been late risers instead being late round gems or mid round gems, because what we didn't get this year, no scouting combine. We have no OHL. We have a lot less footage and sample size data to work with, especially for North American kids, especially for major junior kids. So what you're going to see is a lot of players that would have been that late riser where they had that big final year. They're not getting to show scouts how much they've developed physically. So these are going to be some diamonds in the rough guys that get taken in the third, fourth round that might end up being the equivalent of second rounders, maybe even first rounders. That's what scouts I've talked to believe. It's not going to be a year of first round busts per se, because there's still lots of footage and tournament invites showcases for those top tier players. But for the guys that are sort of, they slip through the cracks and they make a late charge. Those are the guys that are going to get get overlooked. So based on that, I don't know if we're going to see as many risers, but Ryan, you correct me if I'm wrong and tell me if you think there are some risers to watch for. Well, no, I think you you nailed something there when it came to the scouting and, and how everything has changed this year. What I'll say is I think we're going to see a huge variation in team-to-team lists. There will be teams that some have a kid in the second round, others have in like the fifth or sixth round. And you always kind of get that, but I think this year particularly it's going to be very stark. So, you know, when I looked at this question, I looked at a couple of kids that had either uh, big spotlight tournaments or have the potential to. Um, and I'll start with Maddie Beneers, who will play for Team USA at the World Championship. Obviously, a huge opportunity for a teenager to play at that tournament. You know, you don't see a lot of undrafted players, uh, certainly on North American teams. So, you know, for Beneers, who had a, a fantastic World Juniors for Team USA, you know, a key part of them winning gold, had a great freshman season with the University of Michigan. You know, scouts already like him, but what I'm wondering is if he shows really well at the World Championship, does he go from a guy who is probably top five to a guy that could threaten for first or second overall, depending on which team wins the lottery? I certainly think it's 
within the realm of possibility. And again, there, there may be some teams out there that already have veneers that high, uh, but he will have a great opportunity uh, over in Europe to, to really kind of cement that. And then the other player I'll mention, who again was already in that top 10 conversation, but um, Mason McTavish, who played for Canada at the World Under 18s, had a fantastic tournament. I thought he was super engaged. You know, he can be physical and he obviously can put the puck in the net. He was very good at that at the tournament. I, I think I could see teams maybe looking at him and saying, you know what? He really stepped up in what was a, you know, a, a preloaded tournament there at the World Under 18s. He succeeded under the spotlight. You know, we saw him play over in Switzerland this year because there was no OHL season. So he could not play for the Peterborough Peets as he did last year. But he's great against men in Switzerland. You know, didn't back down from anybody. And in fact, he was sort of starting things over there physically. So, you know, I have him as a top 10 pick already. But again, you know, he's he's a center. There's not a lot of centers at the high end this year. Beneers would be the other obvious one. Um, you know, does Mason McTavish all of a sudden creep into a sort of five, six, seven slot instead of eight, nine, ten? You know, I, I know we're not talking about huge degrees of difference here, but you know, at the high end, it's it's pretty significant the teams that are usually making those picks. So I I would think Mason McTavish would be another one to look for just based on what he was able to do at the end of his season. Hmm. It's funny. Mason McTavish to me, it sounds like an EA sports random hockey player and name generator just spliced oh, together. Yeah. Uh, and, and you make a really good point about the, uh, the variance. And it's funny. That's something that an agent said to me, just pointed out the, the Igor Chinikov pick last year from Columbus. And, you know, famously now you had people scrambling on the air trying to find their notes and like, who the heck is this guy? And there's a lot of speculation that we're going to see a ton of those types of picks this year, which is everyone going way off the board. So it should be pretty fun uh, draft-wise. It's going to be probably one of the more unpredictable drafts we've, we've seen maybe ever. Um, next question is from Brandon Gallarno. Gallarno wants to know, is Jonathan Huberdeau the most underrated player in the NHL? He's seventh in scoring the last three seasons and is not talked about nearly as much as the guys in front or behind him on that list. It's a good question. You know, among among uh, hockey journalists, I don't feel like Jonathan Huberdeau is underrated. I think that he's someone we respect as an elite player. You know, I was filling out my mock awards ballot that I put on the website yesterday, and I had Huberdeau as one of my all-star selections. I think I had Brad Marchand, I had Huberdeau as my second team left winger. I think he's pretty much a shoe-in for Team Canada. He might even be the first line left winger. When I did a uh, my first attempt at a mock Canada roster about a year ago, I had Huberdeau as the first line left winger. So I think people understand how good he is, even if he doesn't, you know, hasn't been taking home the hardware. Uh, so to me, maybe it's because the Panthers, they don't get that national TV play. So he's more in the consciousness all of a sudden because people were seeing him play, you know, game one, because finally we're getting some Panthers playoff hockey. Um, but to me, he's, I think the torch has to be passed. Maybe it was Roberto. I, I, it's funny. I've already mentioned him on this podcast, but I think, I think it's Rupa hints now. I think that, Hints had an unbelievable season. He was better than a point per game. He missed some time with injuries. So his overall point total was not like, you know, in the top 10 of the league, but this guy was dominant. And admittedly, I, I'm a Rupe Hints fan. I think he's got a unique blend of, he's a big guy, but he's fast for a big guy. But I, I don't think I understood just how good, how high his ceiling can be. And I do remember talking to, it was actually Jim Neal a couple of years ago where he was I was talking about different Dallas Stars prospects, but he was reminding me like not to sleep on Rupe Hints as well. And he's sort of proving that now. So to me, he's the new most underrated title belt holder. What do you think, Ryan? Yeah, I think that's a, uh, that's a pretty good one. Um, I'll, I'll go back to Florida. I, I think Uberto, Uberto is still kind of underrated and, you know, it is because, you know, in playing in Florida, they, you know, they don't get a lot of like that. You know, they didn't get a lot of NBC games, you know, they don't get a lot of like, winter classics or stadium games or anything like that so he doesn't get that national spotlight in america but because of this panthers lightning series i think a lot of people are waking up even in the state of florida sean gentilly had a fantastic article uh just today talking to different uh people in florida that had either never been been to a hockey game or never even watched a hockey game until that game one and they were just like wow i mean okay. like you know i'm I, I, I'm a Miami Heat fan, but I'm totally going to follow the Florida Panthers now. Um, so I, I think that's going to help. 
you know, if I was thinking about most underrated, I would stay with the Panthers and say Mackenzie Weger, uh, who has become just an amazing defenseman there. And, you know, this is a, a pretty underrated guy that played for some, you know, some really good Halifax Mooseheads team teams uh, in junior. So he was never really the spotlight guy, um, but I mean, he was very successful there. And I think he's, you know, slowly but surely made his way up the ranks where he's almost like the, you know, the Jacob Slavin of Florida where, you know, he's not going to be on a lot of highlight reels necessarily, but he's going to give you some amazing hockey and, you know, put up some really good uh, numbers in terms of analytics, you know, defensive hockey and things like that. Um, so I, I would say, you know, if you think Hubert O's in the spotlight uh, now, then maybe go to Mackenzie Weger next. Yeah, great pick on Mackenzie Weger. When I did my my mock awards ballot, I actually had Weger in my top five for the Norris. I think he, you know, he, he moved the puck really well. And I think, you know, that side of his game is kind of underrated, but even defensively, even better. And he led all defensemen in takeaways per 60 minutes this year. Just a, a thief when it comes to thwarting opposing chances. Really, really good defenseman. Next Can I make question. a small brag about Weger? Yeah, sure. Uh, when I first started the hockey news, I think it was like day two, I pitched an idea about writing about Uyghur and I was told, no, like the guy's a nobody. Why do you care about a third parent defenseman? I'm like, no, no, no. Look at his numbers. He's going to do something really good. It's worked out. You're right? ahead of your time. That's right. And you did the same, I think, for, for Jakob, Jakob Vrana as well, Stephen. Vrana and then uh, Kevin Lankinen. Yeah, so you're the, yeah. you're the kingmaker. So think about an idea now and pitch it in a year. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Okay, next question. This is a really good question from the Broadway Hat Podcast. Broadway Hat Podcast wants to know, give me a player not named Jack Eichel the Rangers should be targeting this offseason. I love this question because it, it's true. It's like people are just pretty much stitching Jack Eichel jerseys already, and it's, it's, there's no guarantee that's where he ends up. Um, so I have I have two different answers. One is like the carte blanche based on what every team would love to have. And I, I said, hey, how about Gabriel Landeskog? Um, he's technically technically going to be a UFA and you know every if you're trying to change the team culture as Jimmy Dolan has implied and if you're bringing in Chris Drury well who's a consummate winner that everyone wants to you know follow into battle Gabriel Landeskog could be your guy but I, I I don't think he's leaving Colorado I'm I'm sure there's a pretty strong chance he already has a handshake agreement that's going to be signed after the expansion draft so I wouldn't worry too much if you're, if you're an avalanche fan listening my real answer is Brock Besser so the New York Rangers uh, we know they're they're already pretty stacked on the left side. They have Artemi Panarin, Chris Kreider, Alexi Lafreniere. On the right side, uh, you have Pavel Buknevich, who took a really big step forward this year. He's been really good. Um, you have Kapo Kako, Vitaly Kravtsov in the long-term depth chart. And we think they're going to be good, but, but we haven't seen the actual leap yet. Kravtsov just dipping his toes in the water as an NHLer. Kako underneath the hood, he improved a lot this year. Didn't really show in his overall numbers, but I think he's still going to be a very good NHLer. But still, if... The Rangers are claiming they need to win now. They're trying to get better in a hurry. So based on the behavior we're seeing from the franchise, they, they might want some more immediate help. So what do you do? You call up the Vancouver Canucks, who regressed a lot this year. They have to start thinking maybe more long-term. You say, hey, would you, rather, would you like to have Kravtsov and Vasily Podkolzin as teammates down the road? Maybe we'll throw you a, a first-round pick as well, something like that. We get a goal scorer. Then you have a solidified top six to bona fide top six right wingers and you get more goal scoring on the right side in Brock Besser. So that's my pick for this uh, Eichel alternative question. What do you think, Mr. Kennedy? Gotcha. See, I went a different way. Uh, and, I, and I also like this question a lot too. I think they should go for another right-handed defenseman. Just one more guy. Cause let's just assume Brendan Smith is not coming back via unrestricted free agency. Uh, and you know, you do have some young guys, as we've mentioned before, that are already there, but unless the Rangers think that Braden Schneider can step into a top six role next season, and, and maybe he can, he's a very good young defenseman, let's not forget, but you know, uh, unless that's sort of their plan, I feel like they need one more guy and they actually have more cap space than you would assume. Um, just, I, I think because they're paying their goaltenders, nothing because their goaltenders are so young and inexperienced, um, you know, like, Panarin and to a lesser extent, Jacob Truba are their only really big contracts. So I'm saying you go for either David Savard or Dougie Hamilton. If you can pry him away from Carolina, maybe Dougie wants to stay in Carolina, but if he's perusing what's out there, 
there's a lot of museums in New York City. <laughs> I was oh. going to say, I was like, I was waiting for the museum joke. I was like, here it comes, yeah, exactly. here it comes. It's too easy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I feel like you add Savard or Hamilton to that lineup and, and that's scary. You know, because of all the young talent, because of Zabanajad and Panarin and, you know, everybody we talked about, that's a scary lineup. And as long as they get goaltending, man. I mean, can you imagine Hamilton and Adam Fox on the same team? And yeah. then Zach Jones as well? Like the puck moving prowess. Miller can lug the puck as well. I mean, that would be a fantastic blue line core. Um, and you still got Jacob Trooper too. Yeah. And, yeah, and Trooper too. So, I mean, you would have some fantastic versatility. Libor Hayek can be your seventh, uh, which is saying something because he's a great young defenseman as well. So, I think if they could if they could snag one of those guys, that would be something special. Good, good answer. Okay, we'll do one more listener question before the rapid-fire game. This is from Paul Sulak. Paul wants to know, is it time for the Flyers to move on from Nolan Patrick? That's a tough one, right, because he's only 22 years old. And you don't want to sell low or give up on a guy that had a lot of promise coming up. Um, but, you know, I think looking back at that draft, you have to say the Flyers, they, they whiffed. And I think a lot of people, you know, would say that. And I, I don't blame the Flyers for it. And I think we had Nolan Patrick ahead of Mira Heiskin and Kale McCarr on our draft board that year, too. It's just sometimes the picks don't work out. And we know that for Nolan Patrick, a lot of it has to do with his migraine disorder. So to me, you know, there's still a lot of upside left. So you think, okay, if you give up on Patrick, if you leave him unprotected in the expansion draft, if you trade him, well, aren't you selling too low? He still has so much potential left, but sadly, if I'm, if I'm putting on my Machiavellian hat, which is, you know, it sounds callous, but that's exactly why it's the time to trade him because the migraine disorder is no joke. We've seen it before in other sports, Percy Harvin in the NFL, it can, it can sort of derail a career and, it can be a hard thing to escape. So I just don't know if Patrick can be able to escape that problem throughout his career. And because of the fact there's that untapped upside, maybe you do have to trade him while there are teams out there that think that they can sort of revive his career. And it's sad to say, it's just, I'm just putting on my GM hat and being cold and calculated for the sake of this question. Obviously I wish Nolan Patrick the best, but just in this context, I think it probably would be wise for the flyers to sell not high, but high enough on Patrick. Mm. It's a very good point. And I mean, that is kind of the stark reality of professional sports. I'm going to, I'm going to set aside the, 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 the future injury questions um, and just point out that because Nolan Patrick has missed so much time, largely with these migraine problems, you know, his development has been stunted. It doesn't mean it's never going to get there. He's 22 years old right now. But think of him as a 19-year-old based on how many games he's actually played and how much time he's actually had to train and be in the gym. You have to treat him like a 19-year-old and say, okay, well, if we put this 19-year-old in the NHL and he had, you know, whatever, 19 points in 56 games, it's like, okay, that's, that's not bad. You know, he's still a teenager. Um, I, I feel that's what you have to do with Nolan Patrick is say it's, it's going to take him longer because he is still – trying to get his NHL legs and he has all these setbacks, which are, you know, very unfortunate, you know, luckily um, in terms of contract, he's still at the beginning of his career. You know, he, he doesn't have a big cap hit. He's not going to have a big next contract. Um, so, you know, the flyers can be patient with him. He, he's not an anchor for them uh, in, in any way, really. So, you know, I, I, I totally see what you're saying, Matt. And, you know, if the Flyers can get a good deal, I, I would say, you know, I would have no problem with that. But I would also sort of caution that, you know, this is not the finished product with Nolan Patrick. It's, if he can stay healthy, and it is a huge if, there's still a lot of untapped potential there. So I, I wouldn't give up on him spiritually, uh, but I would understand if they moved him uh, in order to get something, you know, you know, something tangible that could help the Flyers right now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and maybe it's also a matter of just understanding who Nolan Patrick is. And, you know, even if we look back to his draft year, when we were, you know, when you were collecting scouting data and we were writing about him and just learning about him uh, leading up to his draft year, it wasn't like Nolan Patrick was going to be, you know, Connor McDavid or even Jack Eichel or Patrick King. Right. You know, his skill set was hyped to be cerebral 
and someone who's going to have a good two-way game. Maybe his ceiling is more Jonathan Taves. And, you know, sometimes those players, they make it to the NHL and the offense doesn't come with them, but they still become good NHLers. So maybe in the long term, what Nolan Patrick is going to be is a, a middle six or bottom six forward who is pretty good at what he does. You know, like Scott Lawton. Scott Lawton was a first-round pick. And, you know, even someone like looking at older players, like Riley Nash was a first round pick, right? So maybe Patrick's future is more about just accepting who he is and and it's no longer projecting him to be a star and and realizing that if he can find his game, he could grow, mature into being, you know, a a two-way forward, but who still has the physical skills to keep up with the pace of today's game. It's not like he's going to be a slow grinding checker. He could be a checker that brings more speed and skill to the table, which is kind of the more modern incarnation of what you want from that role. So maybe if people understand that he could just be that and it's okay, then Patrick won't be considered a bust anymore. So let's finish it off, Ryan, with the rapid fire game. I am the host and we will begin. Okay. So first question Wait, before we start, Steven, do you want in on this? I'm in. Okay, Steven's in. So, Ryan, you answer first. Steven okay. will answer second. Steven, coming off the bench in the clutch here. Okay. So, first question. Who is the best non-Hall of Famer playoff performer in NHL history? Justin Williams. I, I would say him, but I'll also go with Danny Briere. Okay, I'm going to say Claude Lemieux. Oh, that's a good one. Next one. Okay, in terms of food that makes you not feel good, who is your fast food nemesis? Who, do you, like, in terms of you don't want to eat it, you're going to regret it every time. Ooh, I actually had like a blacklist for a while of places I wouldn't go to because it made me feel bad. Uh, I will say I try not to go to Burger King or McDonald's unless I am in like a foreign country where I can, I need to like point at the menu. So like when I got to the Czech Republic for the world juniors, I was at like the train station in Prague and it's like, give me number, give me combo five. Yeah. And, and that, and it was, it was fine, but ordinarily I wouldn't. I feel really bad for my girlfriend. The first time I had seven 11 chicken. Um, it was, uh, (laughs) it was terrible. It was, uh, the, the worst food experience I think I've ever had in my life. What are you doing eating 7-Eleven chicken, Stephen? Man, oh, man. I was hungry at 10.30 p.m., apparently. Wow. So it's as bad as, as I live in Toronto. Everything's still open at 10.30 p.m. <laughs> not in Leslieville. Yeah, maybe not. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to say Burger King for sure. I've never not gotten sick eating Burger King. Um, but I'm not talking breakfast. I'm totally cool with their breakfast. The croissant, which I think Burger King breakfast is underrated compared to other mm. fast food chains. But for actual burgers... No way. I'm out. I'm out for life on Burger King. Uh, would you rather sleep every night knowing that there are two tarantulas missing in your house or one python? Oh, two tarantulas for sure, because a python could kill me. I, I don't it's care about worse. spiders, so I'm going to go with tarantulas. Yeah, I'm going to go with tarantulas as well. You guys didn't fall for my trick because tarantulas, obviously, their bites are not like life-threatening right they're not poisonous so i'm I'm going python although the only thing is python at least i feel like you'd be able to hear it or feel it more because it's so big and heavy you'd be able to notice it more whereas the tarantulas you could just they could just be in your bed and you don't know but either way you didn't fall for my trick well done um connor bedard's career is going to be trajectory right career trajectory wise roughly the same as connor mcdavid yeah you, you can't go wrong with Connor McDavid, and that's that's a lot of a lot of pressure, but I, th- I think he's worthy of it. Yeah, I'm going to say Patrick Kane. I'm not going to aim quite as high as McDavid. I'm going to, out of respect to McJesus, I'm going to say only quote unquote the Hall of Famer Patrick Kane. Um, what's a reality show that you believe you could win? That I could win. Oh, that's a very good one. A reality show I could win. You know, I don't watch these shit. Like, I don't watch these particular reality shows, but I think like the Big Brother kinds. I feel like I could like lay in the weeds long enough to get past all the drama stuff. I don't even know how the the thing works. I guess they just play goofy games and like hate each other. But I feel I could lay in the cut enough to to win that. It's a painful show to watch, but I'd say the Circle 
hashtag I hate hashtags because um, they say that a million times. It's like you you can either be yourself or you pretend to be someone else. And I feel like I could have a fun time pretending to be someone else. Mm-hmm. That would be Good fun. Picks. Yeah. Good picks, yeah. Yeah, Ryan, I, I pick Big, Big Brother as well. It's kind of like Survivor in a house, pretty much. I mm. wish I could say Survivor because that it would be my dream to win Survivor, but I, I don't think I'm outdoorsy enough. I think I might struggle to swim or make fire. Um, so, uh, whereas so Big Brother is like the strategy of Survivor without the outdoor part. So I'll pick Big Brother as well. Uh, last question: Who is the funniest player that you have ever interviewed? Ooh, funniest player I've ever interviewed. I would say, um, like, was it Yusi Jokinen? Or was it, no, there's somebody, there's somebody else. There's a Finnish player who like his answering machine is like, like his answering machine message is like, thank you for calling or, Hey, I'm not here. Thank you for being my friend. Uh, and he's like, he was funny and real. It's not using the open name. It's somebody else. Um, oh, it's going to, Steven, you answer. I'm going to think about who that Finn was. Mine's obs- extremely obscure. It's uh, Sam Hunter, the former QMJHL player. His uh, dad is Paul Hunter, the former Toronto Star writer. And uh, this guy, I-, I interviewed him and his brother for a thing with the North York Rangers. And they were just ripping into each other the whole time. But it's like, I actually had a hard time asking questions because Sam Hunter just made me laugh the entire time. Tuoma Rutu. That's who it was. Oh, nice. Nice. Okay. Tuoma Rutu's hilarious. Good. Uh, and I will say, uh, I'll state Ilya Brzgalov. Um, he lived up to the hype of being on the show. And I talked to him about being on the show years later. And just, I think I've said it before on the podcast, but when I was interviewing him for the top 100 goaltenders of all time, you know, he made the list near the bottom, but he kept interrupting me. He'd be like, I'm sorry, I have to ask one more time. I am one of the top 100 goaltenders. Are you sure? And he kept laughing and being like, you picked me as one of the top 100. I was like, yes. Yes, Ilya, you are. He's like, okay. My wife is going to think this is crazy. Yeah, so he was. He lived up to the hype of being an awesome interview, and it was a pleasure to interview him. Well, that concludes the rapid fire game. Thank you for playing, Steve, and thank you for coming off the bench for some crucial minutes. And we will be back next week, I assume, with Ken Campbell if he's back from his vacation. Thanks for listening and watching. Thank you for listening to the Hockey News Podcast. Make sure to check out THN.com slash subscribe to get issues of the Hockey News Magazine delivered right to your mailbox.